Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Welcome to Practical AI, a weekly podcast about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. This is where conversations around AI, machine learning, and data science happen. Join the community and Slack with us around various topics of the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Practical AI FM. And now onto the show. So Wojciech, thanks for joining us in uh, Practical AI. I know you've got a busy schedule today at O'Reilly AI, so thanks for taking time. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, and uh, you probably don't need much introduction, but for those that don't know, um, Wojciech is the, one of the co-founders of OpenAI, and he's going to be talking today at O'Reilly AI about uh, robotics and, and deep learning. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, awesome. It'd be great if you could give, uh, give the audience just a little bit of an idea of your, your background and what you're working on now. Cool. So, I mean, I spent some time at Google Brain. I spent some time at uh, Facebook. I researched. I finished PhD in the topic of deep learning. Even I spent many years ago some time at NVIDIA before actually deep learning was the thing. Uh, so it's kind of somewhat coincidental that all these things turn out to be extremely relevant. As you have said, Daniel, uh, I'm one of the co-founders of OpenAI and goal of OpenAI is quite ambitious, is to figure out the way to build general uh, artificial intelligence or to be more exact, like uh, how to build it in the way that, let's say, it's safe, in a sense we can control it, or let's say figure out, let's say from political perspective, how to deploy it in the way that it is beneficial to humanities as a whole. Our approach uh, is more or less as follows. Uh, we see various limitations of current systems and we think what's the best way to, what are the goals that we should uh, attempt such that if we solve them, it becomes clear that we lived at these limitations. And particularly, so, 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 I mean, there are, let's say, somewhat several kind of internal approaches, how we go about the problems, but in case of what I'm doing, the motivation is as follows. So we know as of today that you can take extremely complicated computer games and machine can become superhuman in it. But the main criticism is, yeah, but that's just a game. It is kind of, let's say, unrelated to reality, confined into, let's say, the realm of the computer. And kind of sounds straightforward that we should be able to pull it off and apply it into real world. but. Turns out that many people tried and haven't succeeded for a while uh, when it comes to very, to let's say, more complicated robots and so on. Yeah, I mean, I will let you ask me more questions and then I can tell you more. Sounds great. Yeah, I appreciate that. I was wondering before going forward if you could just maybe, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, open AI uh, kind of going after general AI or general intelligence. I was wondering if you could kind of break that down for the listeners in terms of how how that might be different from the research or the methods that other people are, are uh, going after. So this clear to me that AI, AGI consists of more or less three components. So, I mean, you have to 
be able to inject gigantic amount of compute, most likely. You need to invent some new algorithms and uh, AI uh, needs some kind of a data or environment in which it lives. Okay? So these are three main components that you have to, let's say, attack if you want just the capabilities of AGI. So uh, I think that OpenAI is uh, extremely well suited to pursue this goal because of a few reasons. One, we are not bounded by a product. And so often when you are uh, building a product, actually quite huge uh, fraction of the work has to do with figuring out the niche or let, let's say target, marketing, let's say packaging and so on. Um, and it's clear that there are various problems that you can attempt that have very small economical value, but it's actually very clear that they are m making actual progress. I mean, if you would, for instance, be able to, you know, train the system that can solve Riemann hypothesis, like and, a very... And, and could you just give a, a quick uh, explanation of, of what that, that is? Uh, okay, yeah. So let's say I just mentioned Riemann hypothesis is like an un unresolved mathematical problem. Uh, yeah. So if if system would be able to, you know, have such an incredible reasoning that would indicate that you lifted one more restriction, maybe, you know, the restriction that the URL networks do not reason much, uh, has not that much of a economical value. I mean, maybe people doing math would get upset, you would unemploy another group of people. But in a sense, that's not the product out of which you are making tons of money. So I'm just saying that, so I just compared, let's say, our approach to the building conventional product I can also compare it to, let's say, academic uh, labs. So in a sense, the, most of the academic labs, they are, uh, they, cons they, 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 they construe of the, it's like an endeavor of small number of individuals. And I would say among these three components that I mentioned, let's say compute algorithms and environment data, it's actually focuses mostly on the algorithm, uh, which is completely fine. That's one of the components. That's the one that the, they are well suited to actually pursue, but it seems to me that you have to be able to pursue actually all three components to make a progress. You need, uh, you need to be able to, you know, to focus the entire data center 10 miles by 10 miles that you know consumes uh, uh, millions of watts with some number of with some number of algorithms and let's say environments to actually uh, achieve it. So in a sense, you need resources beyond actually, let's say, researchers. You need also all sorts of the uh, talented engineers, infrastructure engineers, and so on and so forth. So I guess that's the main difference. Yeah, that, that, that helps a lot. And you kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, in your background, um, you had experience with these different technologies that, um, that uh, kind of coincidentally converged in this new hype around AI, and you co-founded um, OpenAI. And I, I want to get into the content of your talk a little bit later, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could just comment on what you see as some of the advantages and disadvantages of kind of founding a company that is really at the at the center of this hype around AI, and um, what your what your thoughts on on that are, and how you see uh, the field moving forward in in the midst of all this hype. I think. You know, NIPS, uh, the NIPS conference sold out in like 15 minutes. It's like uh, faster than a Taylor Swift conference or, uh, <laughs> or pe something. People are comparing the sales of tickets for NIPS to sales of tickets to Burning Man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and um, open 
OpenAI is really at the at the kind of center of that hype. Have you seen that kind of advantages and disadvantages to to that, or in terms of the progress that you're going after? So I mean, this extremely important to let's say not overpromise, deliver, and so on. I mean, otherwise, over some period of time, it's gonna bite you in the ass. Simple as that. The fact of being well recognized organization definitely helps to hire incredibly brilliant people. I would say I'm feeling pretty much like I'm 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 feeling extremely honored that say people around they are on you know various axes. Pretty much everybody is on some axes better than me. I'm feeling honored that these folks want to work with me. So. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah. Thank, thank you for that. And uh, I definitely uh, respect a lot of a lot of the things you're doing. And um, and so looking forward to seeing seeing what happens from here. But now I want to kind of talk a little bit. Uh, you're going to be talking about deep reinforcement learning for robotics at uh, at OpenAI. Give us just a brief sketch of, of what you'll be talking about. Cool. So as I mentioned at first, uh, it's actually the case that you know reinforcement learning it's a it's quite generic, incredible paradigm. It's effectively saying that you can take any quantity that you can measure and you can, if you can even remotely influence this quantity, you can learn how to, let's say, maximize it. And the quantity can measure, you know, success on the task or so. So this paradigm was used to used in various computer games, was used to beat humans in Go, it was used to, uh, it, in the, uh, game of Dota to get to the professional level. The paradigm has several shortcomings. So in a sense, as of today, it requires insane amount of data. So the, 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 the rates are of tens of thousands of years of experience, virtual experience. So let's say in case of Go or in case of Dota, agent is playing for so long for, 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 for millennia. That's the requirement if you really want to get top pro or superhuman performance. In case of uh, robotics, it seems to be very hard to apply the same paradigm to the physical robots. I mean, it is possible. You can try also to you know, go uh, through the path of decreasing number of uh, interactions. So I would say that's one of the meaningful directions to just minimize the, the try to uh, improve algorithms to minimize number of uh, interactions. And one of the approaches was, let's say, done at Google is to, let's say, build farm of uh, uh, arms to pick an object. But still, there are few fundamental issues. So as long as once you are moving to the real world, it's actually not that easy to even get diversity of data. I mean, you cannot take your arm and go to a waterfall. Other part of the Assumption uh, is that you have to be able to reset and thing from scratch. And it's also say once you are moving some objects, it can fall over, and then you have to build some contraption mechanism to bring it back. So I started myself to think that m maybe the paradigm of reinforcement learning, instead of being close to actually what is happening when the human is learning, is actually closer to the what is happening during evolution, like learning. That you have a really gigantic population, it has huge number of the interactions, rather than like a human kind of thinking through what truly happened and what should be the outcomes. So then um, it is 
also kind of natural to me that uh, in case of evolution like learning, you have, or let's say in case of human learning, there are essentially two stages. There is a stage that takes this gigantic, gigantic amount of data, which is evolution. It actually, the, it is, evolution is reinforcement learning. It's like going to survive or, or die. And this stage uh, is powerful enough to create our brains that can then rapidly learn. So I was thinking, you know, uh, it's actually not such a, a bad thing uh, if we can learn in simulation uh, to slightly add to do, okay, almost majority of the task. And then in reality, there is quite rapid adaptation. So that's what we did. The interesting thing is, when we, so, so, so the task is we, we, we took robotics hand and we are reorienting objects. And let's say speak in a second about the difficulty of this task. But solving the task itself takes something maybe like three years of uh, virtual experience. But then to get the capabilities that allow you for the transfer, that takes another 97 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the generalization to, uh, to uh, create a model that, that creates this kind of, or response to adaptations mm -hmm. takes the longest amount of time. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. And just to kind of clarify a, a few things. So like when you're doing the, this uh, virtual simulation, mm -hmm. um, we, we've talked already on the podcast about, about where deep learning fits into the spectrum of AI techniques and we've talked about um, even like uh, masks, uh, RCNN uh, for in robotics context, but we haven't really dove into reinforcement learning yet. So I was wondering if you could just kind of give us um, a, a brief introduction to um, when you're doing the virtual learning in the, these kind of two stages. So you mentioned the first stage where it's kind of learning a task and then the second stage where you're attempting to make it more, more adaptive. What is the process that, that you're actually doing there? So let me first... Uh describe what reinforcement learning is. That'd be great. So reinforcement learning is a framework of teaching an agent to maximize amount of reward. You can think about it a little bit like training a dog with a treats. Okay? So when the dog is doing good stuff, you are giving the dog treats and then it does more of the, the stuff that you want. And that's the way more or less how you train the computer to become best in all these games, so it's completely up to you when you define that you're gonna give a treat. Ah, yeah. So there's a, there's a, a feedback that happens, right? Uh, With some co uh, correct. So agent itself, uh, effectively, some network that consumes observations. You can think as as of an analogy to a human. This like a you know, input to eyes, ears, nose, touch, and so on, and. Uh, network supposed to produce actions. So in our case, it would be, you know, electric signal, the nerves to, to decide how to move, let's say, limbs or so. And the network itself attempts to maximize reward. The system has a chance only to be successful if from time to time it gets a reward. So that's a kind of, let's say, let me a little bit downplay reinforcement learning. So the situations that wouldn't work is if you give a treat to a dog after it lands on Mars. Okay, it's like okay, it will just never happen. It has to from time to time. It starts with it starts at first with very random strategy, and then gradually it attempts to get more and more of the treats. So that's pretty much the paradigm of uh, reinforcement learning. And that's what uh, you would be doing, kind of in that in that first stage where you're teaching uh, teaching a specific task. Is is that right? Correct. So. 
Uh, let me briefly describe the task. Yep. So we have a new match about the robotics over a year ago. Uh, we went to robotics conference. We asked people what are the things that are impossible or very hard to do in the classical robotics. And people are saying anytime when you have large number of degrees of freedom, it's very hard to control when there is a lot of interactions, when you touch uh, many things simultane in many places simultaneously, that's also very hard to model. Uh, and there is when it is way easier when you are in the open space and you are not touching anything, okay? Uh, or if the problem somehow can be simplified to one or two dimensional problems, then there are some, let's say, closed form solutions. But in case of uh, robotics hand, robotics hand has, let's say the one that we bought has 24 degrees of freedom. We also kind of knew that the task is solvable because human can solve it. So we, we, we wanted to have a hope for the success. Yeah, and task is you take an object, in our case, we demonstrated it on two different objects, which is one is a block, one is uh, some octagonal prism, and task is move it around to the new desired position. Like in a robotic hand. In yeah. the robotic hand. Yeah. So, as I said, we, we were able you know, to train it actually a while ago already in the simulation to uh, achieve it, but then during deployment, it didn't work at all, like literally not at all, despite easily being able to solve it in the um, simulation. Typical response of, or let's say, the typical approach is let's just get the simulation closer and closer and closer and closer to reality. And I would say that helps, but the <coughs> problem is that with sufficiently complicated systems like the hand, it is actually impossible to model everything. So since hand has tendons, tendons stretch. It has a rubber, rubber deforms. Also the shape that you have in the simulation actually doesn't even correspond exactly to the real shape. And when there is a lot of interactions, the difference in the given place you are touching versus not touching might cause the object to pivot, let's say slip over and so on. Yeah. So that's why things do not want to transfer. Yeah, so it's like a, a lot of very small kind of differences in, in how things are touched or moved can create a whole different outcome. Uh, yeah. Correct. In the sense, the fundamental idea that allows us for, let's say, adaptation to reality, say, is actually extremely simple what we did. So, in a sense, the, you know, the initial approach is you have this single simulation, you can think about it like a single universe in which you are training and then you are asking here is an alternative universe in which you want to actually verify the performance. And we are just instead saying, if you will have entire distribution, many universes, and network has a capability to encode its, inst or let's say, try to distinguish them, then it essentially might force the network to try to discover what are the underlying properties. So let's say if we don't know exactly uh, what's the weight of the cube, or I mean more or less maybe we know, but it might be off. If we have a network that just has a capability to, let's say, through interaction, pass the information, and that these are like a very common networks, recurrent neural networks, then as we vary these parameters and it tries in the simulation on all of these instances, maximize the score, it implicitly actually does, it, it has to try to, based on the initial few seconds, try to find out what are these values. I mean, 
Zycadar two com combination of two things. It on one side it tries to be robust to some components, and on one side it uh, tries to adapt to uh, various things. And in a sense, th this is in the core of the idea to actually achieve the transfer to the reality. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, how long have you been kind of uh, working towards this this type of adaptation, and how has how has the process gone? Have you have you made other attempts to make this uh, transfer to reality that that haven't worked as well? Or yes, yeah, so. And that project more or less took us to one year. Don't uh, say I mean earlier on there was let's say maybe five people. Later on in the project there is maybe closer to let's say 15 or, or so. So I would say average 10 human years. There were many many attempts internally, and uh, many of the things that we tried they partially worked and so on. But uh, so, so so I mean the, the way how the team is more or less organized is once we agree on the goal. Okay, try to, let's say, gauge people and ask what do you think is the best way to solve the problem. And in that sense, as I said, okay, people to some extent are, are towards, on many axes, they are smarter than me and they might sometimes better know <coughs> than me what's the best approach. When you're in the situation that there are multiple competitive approaches, you're also becoming closer to the truth, what really works. So, I mean, it's often the case that idea, as long as it is, let's say, sound, it will show signs of life, but it doesn't mean that this is the really ultimate solution. It might be sufficient for, the, you know, to present the conference or so, but our goal is truly to solve problem and actually get to the solutions that we think we can push forward. So when I was looking through the OpenAI website and kind of looking into some of uh, some of what you're trying to achieve, I, I kept coming across this uh, statement about you know safe applications of AI. Mm -hmm. And I know we've we've talked in the past about AI ethics and other things. I was wondering if you could briefly talk about you know safe AI, how how you see that, and um, you know maybe what counter examples to safe AI would be. So there are several problems into it. One problem is question how to ensure that the system will be achieving the goal in the way that we intended it to achieve. So, I mean, there are many kind of philosophical examples and so on, and I want to go through some of them. Uh, it sounds somewhat foreign, but simultaneously, we are starting to see that actually it is not as trivial to tell actually system what to do because it is completely abstracted from our values, ethics, and so on. So in a sense, you tell someone make money. It's like the best way to make money is steal a car, say uh, sell drugs. Okay, the, all the stuff that is really that you wouldn't intend the system to do. It's actually the best Things way. Things we probably don't want robots doing. Yeah, I mean, or <laughs> even you don't need robots for it. To give you some example, let's say if you are really insanely clever about stock market, you can. If, if I'm saying insanely clever and you know you have superhuman capabilities and what you truly care about is to maximize profit you can you know cause a war in the country and short the stocks and it is completely valid strategy if that's yeah. the quantity to that reach it, an objective to yeah. reach the objective yeah. and in some sense you can say that the the systems that we are training, you can say it has a little bit like a profile of psychopath. It only cares about the one thing and one thing only. That's literally how we optimize them. They are completely abstracted away from everything else and they want just these treats, 
streets, streets, and uh, they actually don't know even about the things that are really important to us. So the question is, what's the way even to inject what we want, what is our ethics? And uh, I, I mean, there are, I would say there are m m multiple axes into safety. So just uh, told you about one which is more or less called misspecification. I mean, so specify something, but it's actually something something slightly different that you really wanted. And we can see it like even in some computer games that he has the system to maximize score in the game, but truly you would like ask the system to finish the game and then it finds some bug on some level of the game and keeps on staying there, let's say generating a lot of points, but actually doesn't progress anymore in the game. I mean, there are other axes, which is which is how to make the systems robust to adversaries. And to, to give some concrete examples, so let's say there was a there was a Twitter bot released by Microsoft, Tanya, and this uh, folks from Microsoft. Uh, there is no doubt. There's like a, a lot of very clever researchers and so on. So I can say that it's like a, they thought through various scenarios, okay? But despite, let's say, thinking it through, turns out that the bot within several hours was hijacked and uh, uh, repurposed as soon as it started saying very offensive things on Twitter. So in sense, you might ask, is it the case that as the systems uh, will become smarter, will they be uh, less prone to it. I actually think that it might be due to the overall increased complexity, the surface area will just increase. Yeah, it's it's almost, uh, even if you're trying to misspecify a, an objective, there, there's the space of objectives is, is larger, it's more, more complex. Yeah, so I would say from perspective of pursuing safe AGI, there are also per se three main things. So. One, in order to achieve it, I mean, you have to, let's say, uh, work toward capabilities. Second one is you have to work toward safety, so what we just discussed. And the third one is a question, let's say, even if we would have it today, what are the, the what's the step in terms of a policy? What should we do uh, with it? And I would say, also, all these three components actually fit into each other, so capabilities, indicate actually maybe what the shape of AGI will be there for, what are the ways to actually inject our ethics and so on, the safe, safety work, and also it helps the policy people. So, so I'm saying like uh, all these topics, they fit into each other. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I'd love to switch directions here for, for the last bit of, of the show and kind of get your perspective. Um, so you mentioned a lot of really exciting things around robotics and a lot of that involved kind of uh, large scale computing and uh, um, lots of large simulations. I was wondering for, for people that are out there like trying to get their hands dirty with some of these techniques, maybe it's reinforcement learning or other things, what are some good ways for people to kind of uh, get their hands dirty and start working on, on uh, problems that, that are interesting, but maybe they aren't able to run these you know, large scale simulations and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, there are incredible materials online. So I would just go first through all Coursera, Udacity, lectures from Berkeley, Stanford, follow all the homeworks. So I would say that's step one. <laughs> there are also great books. I mean, there is a book by Ian, deep learning book. There is there, there is reinforcement learning book by Richard Sutton. 
Yeah, and so I would say that would be my starting point. And uh, I think it's actually quite important to get very strong fundamentals for fundaments. Because in the sense, by default, when you run your models, first, they do not work at all. <laughs> yeah. And then the question is, so what do you do? And the simpler models, the fewer tricks or steps you have to do, and you have to familiarize yourself with them. The harder models, the larger number of these steps. So it's very likely that at first you don't know any of them. If you need to do 10 things, you are less likely to succeed versus if you need to do two things. I would really recommend to go through fundamentals instead of jumping right away to the most difficult uh, architectures. And I would really recommend to as much as you can to implement things from scratch. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. I know I've had some experience in the past where you know uh, some research comes out. It's really interesting, and you know uh, you can go to a GitHub repo within a number of days, and there's a open source uh, architecture there. But you try to run it, and you see all these uh, weird behavior, and maybe it behaves differently than you would expect. But it's really hard if you don't know the fundamentals to to dive into the debug and, and advance. So yeah, that's that's great. I know uh, I appreciated what you've said about any one person, even even yourself who who's advanced a lot in this field, doesn't have all of the pieces of knowledge to to you know uh, perform a successful research or to uh, advance a project. I was wondering. At OpenAI, how do you kind of uh, structure your teams and, and what do you look for and when you're kind of putting together a team so that you have a variety of experience and, and perspectives to, to actually give a, a good result? So different teams, they, are, um, they have a little bit different values and they are differently organized. I can speak about robotics. It's extremely important to have uh, people who are good team players. I would say also when we hire people, we hire it based on being incredible in something. It doesn't uh, need to be exactly what they will be working on or so. It's like a, more or less you want to verify brilliancy and that's a sign that a person can adapt to whatever is needed. I also, let's say, so in a sense, want people to be able from day zero to contribute. Still, let's say I encourage to spend one day per week on, let's say, do arbitrary learning. We have, let's say, internally curriculum with simple stuff. I like people who are excited about the resolving problems. So in the sense, when it comes to difficult problems, as for instance, as the last project, it is very common that the time in the middle is when everything is extremely difficult. And you need the people who have this, let's say, internal energy that they can, you know, still push it through and get it through. Yeah, so persistence and motivation and passion for, for the problem. Correct. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'd love to take time if there's anything, um, where where can people find out, you know, more about OpenAI and are there any kind of open source projects or papers or efforts that you'd like to kind of share and we can, we'll for sure post those in the, in the show links and everything. We are quite frequently releasing what we are able to build on our uh, blog. So that's at the openai.com website. We are also quite active on Twitter. So it's twitter.com slash openai. There were, uh, you asked about the research proposals or so. We posted, I think even twice, let's say a bunch of ideas for projects for uh, people. If they want to pursue it, 
receive an indication of the level of difficulty, that might be a place to start. Awesome. And, and where can we find that? Uh, that's also uh, on our website. Awesome. Well, um, I really appreciate you taking time. I know that you must be busy and you're getting ready for your talk. So um, I'll let you get back to that. But thank you so much for, for joining us. It was a really great conversation. Thank you, Daniel. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Practically AI. If you enjoyed this show, do us a favor. Go on iTunes, give us a rating, go in your podcast app and favorite it. If you are on Twitter or a social network, share a link with a friend, whatever you got to do, share the show with a friend if you enjoyed it. And bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. And we catch our errors before our users do here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Check them out. Support this show. This episode is hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson. Editing is done by Tim Smith. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com. When you go there, pop in your email address, get our weekly email, keeping you up to date with the news and podcasts for developers in your inbox every single week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.